0: And now I'm delighted to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Stan Cohan. Dr. Cohan is well known to many of us, and it is a bit of a challenge to distill his career and accomplishments into a brief introduction, but I'll do my best. He is the current director of the Providence Multiple Sclerosis Center here at St. Vincent and founder and director of the Pacific Northwest MS Registry, as well as the Providence, Oregon Director of Neurological Research. Doctor Cohan earned his medical degree and PhD from the State University of New York Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York, and did neurology residency at Albert Einstein College. He then went on uh, to become chief resident of neurology at Georgetown University, where he served many years becoming professor and chairman of the Department of Neurology before coming to Providence in 2000. Dr. Kohan earned the National Multiple Sclerosis Society Medical Practitioner of the Year in 2018, and in the subsequent year was named into the MS Society Hall of Fame. Dr. Cohan has been extensively involved in research in his field of multiple sclerosis with literally dozens of publications, peer reviewed articles and abstracts and has provided editorial service for several major journals in his field. Dr. Cohan is ever curious. He is the role model student and teacher for so many of us. He is incredibly generous with his time teaching faculty, residents, and students, and is often invited to the national and international stage for his expertise. So thank you so much for taking your time again, Dr. Cohan.
1: Well, thank you for that very, very generous introduction. I hope I can live up to it. Um, Thank you for having me this morning. Uh, I'm going to be speaking about multiple sclerosis, but before I start, I just want to uh, say that I want to dedicate this morning's lecture to the memory of Ruth Parker, a person who meant so much to so many of us. Um, Here are my disclosures. You might take a moment to look at those. Now, um, I'm going to be covering several topics. We'll briefly discuss demographics and epidemiology and talk at least to the extent that we understand it, the pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis, but to spend the bulk of the time on the therapeutic agents, none of which existed 25 years ago, and the impact they've had on the management of our disease, this disease and their relationship to what we do understand about pathogenesis. Now, multiple sclerosis was for many years listed as a rare disease, yet there are at least a million people with multiple sclerosis in the United States alone. Although MS can, protect, can present at any age, including early childhood, it's typically a disease which has its onset clinically in late adolescence to early and mid-adult life. The overwhelming majority of patients who get multiple sclerosis are female, some three or four to one ratio, and that ratio is increasing, and we don't know why. Now, multiple sclerosis is not only not a rare disease, it is the most common cause of severe disability in young and middle-aged adults in the industrialized world, and furthermore, has almost a three times increased risk of mortality on an age-adjusted basis. Multiple sclerosis makes patients exquisitely more sensitive to the impact of their comorbid, especially cardiovascular, pulmonary disease. Factors for this disease is a very, very interesting, intriguing topic. And one of the things that's been noted is that the further from the equator you were born, the more likely you were to get
0: Them. If
1: on the other hand, they left as a child and went to a place of low risk, uh, they inherited the new low risk environment. Uh, this was attributed at one point to maybe this disease is due to viruses and certain viruses are more common or more aggressive in certain latitudes, a variety of uh, proposal genetics. Certainly someone from Norway is genetically different in some ways than someone who was born in Libya and so on. However, doing studies of migration, which occurred in an enormous extent after the Second World War, made it very apparent that this was not just genetic, that there was something in the environment that seemed to be responsible for this geographic risk distribution. We now understand that it is most likely the result of vitamin D relative deficiency. There are extensive epidemiologic studies that make it very, very evident that vitamin D or its deficiency is a major player in the risk of getting this disease and how severe the disease is when it presents. There are over 1700 genes that have a receptor for vitamin D. And of those, the overwhelming majority of those genes are genes that regulate the immune system. And the suggestion has been made that vitamin D deficiency early in life leads to a failure in the development of auto-tolerance. And again, these uh, results, the role of vitamin D is supported by numerous, very almost unequivocal um, epidemiologic studies. Now, there are more than really 240 genes as of my last reading that have been identified with uh, conveying risk of developing multiple sclerosis. And only recently within the last year for the first time has a gene on the X chromosome been identified as one of the risk factors. They have varying degrees of impact on the risk of getting the disease, um, with one gene in particular, which I'll return to in a few moments, conferring over 50% of the gene-driven risk of getting this disease. Multiple sclerosis has been traditionally thought of as a disease primarily of Caucasians, of Northern European uh, inheritance. Uh, This appears to be a sampling error, and recent studies, albeit with small number of patients, suggest that, for instance, in women, African-American women have one and a half times the risk of developing relapsing multiple sclerosis as Caucasian-American counterparts. Now, the overall risk of developing multiple sclerosis in the United States is somewhere between one in three and 500. However, if you're a first order relative, that risk could be increased as much as 10 times. And if you're a dizygotic twin and one of the twins had mass, it's about one in 20. And for monozygotic twins, the risk is one in three. So clearly this emphasizes the importance of genetics on the one hand, but also the fact that only one in three monozygotic twins are concordant also points out that it is not just genetic and that again, other factors including environmental factors may be at play. Uh, Some of you have seen this, uh, maybe all of you have seen a slide like this before, but I think this is a good time to just briefly go over this. There are three fundamental phenotypes that we describe the clinical behavior of multiple sclerosis with. And the most common is relapsing remitting MS. This accounts for about 85% to 90% of patients at presentation. Relapsing remitting disease is characterized by the acute onset of neurologic impairment that may last for a variable period of time. And then there's either a complete or incomplete recovery. This is more common the incomplete recovery, and over time, with repeated relapses, there is an accumulation of fixed neurological deficit. And that is the pattern that we see in relapsing MS. Unfortunately, in the overwhelming majority of patients with relapsing disease, if left untreated, will go on to a dangerous secondary progressive form of the disease. They still may be having relapses, but between relapses, they're getting progressively worse until eventually they reach a point where there's progression in neurological disability without there being any superimposed relapses at all. This is the most feared portion of this disease. Number one, this is when the really serious disability comes in. This is when people lose the ability to walk. This is when people wind up in wheelchairs and so on. But in addition to that, we really have very little understanding of the pathogenesis of the progressive form of this disease and have very little in the way of therapy for them as well. That cannot be said about relapsing disease, about which a great deal is known, although our knowledge is incomplete. And for the rest of this talk, I will be primarily talking about the treatment of patients with relapsing disease. Now multiple sclerosis is a cell driven disease. It is not a humoral disease, although antibodies do occur. Uh, It was thought for a very, very long time that the T cell lymphocyte was the driver of the disease. And therapies, early therapies were directed in, on that. Uh, it turns out it was an artifact that the animal models used to study MS. And in reality, both the innate and the adaptive immune system, B-cell and T-cell lymphocytes, monocytes, macrophages and dendritic cells, uh, the latter being um, part of the intrinsic immune system, all play a role in the generation of relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis. Now, let's take a brief stay here because I want to emphasize the importance of the B-cell lymphocyte. And as I begin to talk about various therapies, you'll see how it rises to the surface as a very important target. Now, on your left, we see a B-cell, and this is the magnification of its membrane surface. And this is an autoantigen, Uh, in our case, a fragment of myelin, which has just been presented to this make-believe B-cell, let's say, by a macrophage. It's incorporated. It's reprocessed. And then it is presented to a T-cell lymphocyte. And the presentation of this reworked particle activates this cell. This cell is now programmed to attack any time it sees this uh, uh, molecule. This complex right here, the gene that this complex is responsible for 50% genetic risk of getting this disease. One more. Here we go. This drawing attempts to show you lymphocytes in circulation. There's a blood vessel within this system, a venule, and a white blood cell attaching the blood vessel wall because ongoing inflammation has led to the production of chemoattractants, chemokines, by the endothelial cells lining this blood vessel. This attracts the white blood cell. It releases proteinases, leading to the degradation of intercellular bridges, and it migrates into the central nervous system. Now, if it encounters antigen to which it's been programmed, such as a myelin fragment, it becomes activated, it releases pro-inflammatory cytokines, such as tumor necrosis alpha and gamma interferon, which can directly damage tissue, as well as release trophic in uh, um, molecules such as interleukin-2, which cause a reinforcement of the signal, causing more cells to become activated. And we have this massive attack on myelin and axons. What does this look like microscopically? This is an immunofluorescent uh, uh, histogram uh, of a piece of tissue within an active relapsing lesion of the brain. The red covering is normal myelin. The yellow stripe is a normal axon. And you'll notice there are areas where the myelin is stripped off and this axon is actually beginning to degrade. It's become phosphorylated. That's why it's blue. I also want you to notice this bleb right here, another smaller one here. That's a transected axon. That cell is permanently damaged and will not recover and the neuron will die. About 11,000 of these are seen per cubic millimeter of active inflamed tissue. So the, the impact of an, a direct inflame, inflammatory attack during MS has devastating consequences to brain tissue. Now, what initiates this? What kicks all of this off? Well, for years now, people have thought that there must be some infectious agent and a variety of viruses, herpes zoster, herpes simplex, herpes type six, a wide variety of of viral and even some bacterial agents have been looked at. Yet, what seems to walk away from this is that it's most likely Epstein-Barr virus. So one possible explanation is that a person has a central nervous system infection which initiates an immune inflammatory response by the immune system as it attacks the virus. But in the process of destroying the virus, it also does damage to myelin and axons as part of the inflammatory attack. And in genetically susceptible people who have a reduced ability to recognize self antigen, it then sets off an autoimmune self-sustaining disease of repeated attacks. So the viral infection elicits the immune response myelin gets damaged in the process. Macrophages come in to clean it all up, and they do, to remove myelin debris. And then we know these macrophages uh, migrate out of the central nervous system. And these have been seen in lymph nodes in the neck, draining the brain. And what we find in those macrophages is myelin debris. The thought then would be that the macrophages present the myelin antigen to B-cell lymphocytes, which process it, presented to T-cells, and now you have T-cells that are activated to respond to myelin antigens. These lymphocytes enter the central nervous system and attack myelin and axons to produce a relapse. Now, this is a very, very busy diagram, as the cliche goes, but let's put this into perspective. Let's say this is the EB virus particle. It's consumed by macrophages. It's presented to B-cells. B-cells activate T-cells. However, the EB virus also has infested the central nervous system here say in the brain. So these activated cells cross the blood brain barrier, kill the virus. In the process, they damage myelin. Myelin fragments are picked up by macrophages, taken to lymph nodes where eventually T cells are activated, starts the cycle over again, only this time when T cells enter, they're not going after EB virus, they're going after myelin, producing an acute relapse. So this is a current, pretty well accepted idea of what, what's going on in relapsing disease. Now, as I said, EB virus is currently the leading candidate as the, uh, the evil character in, in relapsing disease. And there are a couple of things that support this. Number one, mononucleosis is much more common in women who develop MS versus women who don't. EB virus DNA has been found inside lymphocytes abutting on um, demyelinated lesions within the brain. And furthermore, oligoclonal bands, which you've all heard of, that are found in the spinal fluid of patients with MS are rich in immune globulins directed against nuclear antigens of VB virus. So in, to summarize this, a viral infection in a genetically susceptible person, possibly deficient in vitamin D, which further impairs their ability to develop auto-tolerance to self-antigens, sets up a recurring attack cycle in which the nervous system is attacked by activated lymphocytes reacting to self-antigen. Now, this is getting a little more granular. Here's our leukocyte again, our lymphocyte. And our lymphocyte, because it's activated, expresses docking molecules on its surface. In this case, alpha-4-integrin, which attaches the vascular cell adhesion molecules on the endothelium exclusively of the central nervous system. When the alpha integrin interactivates inter- the VCAM, this leads to the induction of proteinases, enzymes that break down the intercellular bridges between endothelial cells and the lymphocyte gets into the brain or spinal cord. Okay, that's the model for relapsing disease. Now, if we have a medication for relapsing disease, what should this medication do? Well, first of all, it should reduce relapses, right? Furthermore, it should reduce evidence of disease activity on MRI scanning. MRI scans are the most specific and most sensitive biomarker we have of disease activity in multiple sclerosis. For every clinical sign or every clinical symptom that a patient has, there are anywhere from 9 to 20 lesions in the brain that produce no symptoms at all. So the brain is much more, the MRI is much more sensitive for detecting disease than clinical features. So in addition to reducing relapses and reducing evidence of disease activity on MRI scan, the ultimate goal is to prevent the disability getting worse. Disability physically, disability cognitively, which occurs in over 50% of MS patients, as well as the neuropsychiatric impact of this disease. Now, when do you start treatment? You start treatment as soon as the diagnosis is made. There is nothing to be gained by procrastination, just the opposite. The sooner you can stop relapses, the greater the likelihood that you'll have less total brain damage and reducing the likelihood of patients going on to progressive disease. Now, I'm going to now go through the various therapies and I've arranged them uh, a little bit according to their historical evolution, but also mechanisms of action and efficacy. And the first group of drugs we now refer to as the platform drugs. These are the beta interferons and glatiramer, And these were tested in phase three, class one evidence studies, tested against placebo, and they all reduced relapse. They all reduced disease activity on MRI scans. And at least in the case of the beta interferons, also reduced the likelihood of disability, fixed disability progression. These medications are very well tolerated. They are very, very safe, but the problem is they require self-injection every day, three times a week, once a week, once every other week. So compliance is poor, adherence is poor. You're asking patients to inject themselves on a regular basis for years. This is a chronic disease. So unfortunately, the effectiveness of the medication clearly is modified by poor compliance in many, many patients. The proposed mechanism of action of these drugs are incompletely understood, but some things are clearly identified. First of all, the use of these medicines shifts um, the profile of inflammatory cells from autoreactive to autotolerant. So these become uh, an anti-inflammatory cytokines rather than pro-inflammatory cytokines are produced. And furthermore, at least in the case of the interferons, there's a reduction in the ability of lymphocytes to migrate into the central nervous system through blood vessel walls. And just recently, it's been demonstrated um, to a surprise of a lot of people that interferon beta also increases vitamin D production. And we know that vitamin D is protective, both in terms of frequency of relapses and severity of disease. Now, as I said, the problem with these agents is that they're injectables. We clearly needed oral agents. And thank heaven we finally have them. And I'm now going to spend some time going through the currently approved oral agents for the treatment of relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis. The first of these is teriflunomide, a medication like the platform drug, of rather modest efficacy, but well-tolerated in most patients. The major problem here is it has a black box warning for pregnancy, which really has to be closely followed. And furthermore, this drug, even after discontinuance, can remain for up to two years in a patient. So if the medication stopped, the medication has to be removed. And we do that with cholestyramine because fortunately this drug has a endohepatic circulation and we can remove it within about 10 days. Now this drug works by blocking a mitochondrial enzyme called dihydroorate dehydrogenase. Say that six times. And what uh, this enzyme, uh, blockage of this enzyme does is it prevents the de novo synthesis of pyrimidine by mitochondria. And this is very important because this molecule is necessary for the synthesis of nucleotides and proteins. As a result of this, uh, there is an impairment in the maturation function and number of activated, not resting, but activated B and T cell lymphocytes. This medication reduces relapse risk reduces MRI markers of disease activity, and also reduces disability progression. But once again, this is compared to placebo treatment. Nevertheless, this medication plays a very important role in the treatment, especially of patients with milder milder disease. This cartoon attempts to show you what this medication does. So here's a mitochondria, and here's the enzyme in question, which ultimately leads to the production of pyrimidine. Teraflunamide blocks this enzyme and therefore decreases protein synthesis, nucleotide synthesis, and glycoprotein synthesis. It decreases proliferation and maturation of activated lymphocytes, not resting lymphocytes. And there is a salvage pathway that doesn't depend upon mitochondria to recycle pyrimidine for resting cells so they do not perish. All right, the methyl fumarates have taken a major uh, place on the stage in treating multiple, relapsing multiple sclerosis. Uh, these are generally very well tolerated medications. They are oral as well, but again, of probably just modest efficacy, although recent studies suggest that perhaps, perhaps it's slightly more effective than teriflunomide. This uh, group of medications have a very novel mechanism of action. They reduce oxidative stress. They reduce the impact of free radical and oxygen species on damaging tissue, these species are known to be increased during acute inflammatory attacks. It does so by forcing the release from the cytoplasm of a nuclear factor, we'll call NRF2, that stimulates genes that produce proteins rich in sulfhydryl groups and thus becomes an antioxidant oxygen quenching protein or peptide. An example of this would be increased production of glutathione. This also was compared to placebo and just like the medicines I've mentioned so far, it reduces relapses, it reduces MRI evidence of disease activity, and also reduces disability progression to a modest extent in patients with relapsing disease. This again is a cartoon sort of trying to explain what happens. So dimethylfumarate is immediately uh, hydrolyzed to monomethylfumarate, which is the active ingredient, and it enters the cytoplasm of a cell. This is freely diffusible within the brain. And here we have a that's under oxidative attack because of acute inflammation. The monomethylfumarate enters the cell, and the monomethylfumarate displaces the NRF2 from one which had cytoplasm. So now it's released from this holding station the nucleus and in the nucleus acts as a stimulatory cofactor production of sulfhydryl group containing peptides and proteins which has an antioxidant effect. To this point we're talking about medicines of modest efficacy quite safe but as we move up the hierarchy of efficacy of course there's also increased risk um, and that can never be forgotten. We're always balancing risk versus benefit in terms of how sick the person is. Now, a big step forward has been the development of medicines that modulate the sphingosine one phosphate receptor. The sphingosine is a component of membrane lipids. We know that, and for the long time, longest time it was thought to be its only function. It turns out that its product, sphingosine one phosphate, mostly occur- um, being derived from membranes of platelets and erythrocytes is a very, very important, almost ubiquitous messenger throughout the body. And it's been learned that modulation of the receptor for sphingosine 1-phosphate has very potent effects on the immune system. The first drug which had an effect in doing uh, modulating this was Fingolimod. We now have four such medications. The last of these, Panisimod, only being approved by the FDA in the last six months. Now, there is five subtype receptors for sphingosine 1-phosphate. We're gonna concentrate on one and five. It's important to know that these receptors are G-protein coupled, and the G-proteins, these are transmembrane receptors, and inside the cell are these G-proteins, and different G proteins have a multitude of different pathways they regulate inside the cell. So there's almost a countless number of ways in which modulation of these receptors affects intracellular behavior. And it's the modulation in one and five that seems to be so important in the treatment of relapsing multiple sclerosis. Now, these, cell, these drugs prevent certain groups of lymphocytes from leaving peripheral lymphoid organs. And it has been suggested that the putative mechanism by which these medicines work is that by inhibiting, let me go back, by inhibiting the type one receptor, you can prevent lymphocytes from leaving lymph nodes, the spleen and the thymus, especially central memory T and B cell lymphocytes, which seem to be so important in driving relapsing disease. And here's you can tell this is my drawing <laughs> it's so amateurish so this is supposed to be a lymph node and cells are constantly entering and leaving all the time now it turns out that central memory b cells and central memory t cells are held in the lymph nodes they are docked because they express something called chemokine receptor 7 and that causes their retention in the lymph node however during inflammatory states there's an upregulation of sphingosine 1-phosphate. The concentration goes way up. And when sphingosine 1-phosphate interacts with the receptor, it unleashes this cell. It allows it to be released from the binding to to the lymph node by CCR7 and get out into the general circulation during an acute inflammatory state. Now, one of the medications, Fingolamide is supposed to be represented in this cartoon. So this little squiggle here is supposed to be Fingolamide. It interacts with, with receptor type 1, causes its internalization and its destruction. Now the lymphocyte has no way of being stimulated by S1P during an acute inflammatory state. And we look again at the lymph node. Cells co- of all types coming into the lymph node. This little thing that looks like a light bulb is supposed to be the generic sphingosine 1 phosphate receptor modulator medicine. So it blocks the receptor, causing its degradation, leaving these cells incapable of responding to the sphingosine 1-phosphate uh, concentration gradient. So these cells are retained, while other lymphocytes, such as affective memories, and now they can get out because they're not held in place by CCR7. So the ability to retain lymph nodes in the peripheral lymphoid organs has been proposed as the mechanism by which these medicines work. It probably contributes, but it may not be the entire story. Now, these medications are much more effective than the medicines I've shown you so far. And in head-to-head studies, uh, it's been clearly evident that these drugs are more efficacious. Now, the problem is there are some very significant side effects that uh, and risks that d- deserve mentioning. Uh, these medicines slow cardiac conduction, so people with conduction defects, patients on type on uh, uh, group one and group three antiarrhythmics. Um, Uh, patients who have recent myocardial infarction, these are patients who are not good candidates for these drugs, nor are diabetics because of an increased risk of uveitis and macular edema. And there is a significant increased risk of herpetiform infections, including disseminated herpetiform infections in patients receiving these medications. However, it, it turns out the story is much richer than just the effect on lymph nodes. These receptors that I've been talking about are also expressed in the central nervous system. And furthermore, these meds easily get into the brain. They easily penetrate the blood-brain barrier. Now, sphingosine-1 and sphingosine-5 type receptors are expressed on astrocytes and on oligodendroglial cells, for instance. So it turns out that one of the other roles of sphingosine-1-phosphate type-1 receptor modulation is it prevents the activation of astrocytes, which we know play an important role in brain damage in MS. And furthermore, modulation of the type 5 receptor closes the blood-brain barrier to make it more difficult for cells to get into the central nervous system. And then lastly, promotes remyelination because receptor 5 is expressed on progenitor cells of oligodendroglial cells. These progenitor cells are mobilized, they mature, and they become myelin-producing cells. So, therefore, there are multiple mechanisms by which this very important category of oral medications work in multiple sclerosis. However, because of the risks associated with them, there really has to be the properly selected patient for their use. Now, natalizumab is an intravenous medication, and it is is first the first of the monoclonal antibodies to be used in MS. It is specifically directed against the alpha 4 integrin, and you'll recall on a uh, drawing I showed you before that alpha-4 integrin is expressed on the surface of activated lymphocytes that are going to enter the nervous system if they can interact with the the VCAM receptor on the surface of endothelial cells and then breach the blood-brain barrier. What natalizumab does as a monoclonal antibody to alpha-4 integrin is it leaves the alpha-4 integrin incapable of interacting with VCAM, so the cell just keeps on going. Uh, This medication, uh, natalizumab, uh, it will saturate lymphocytes after a single infusion for up to three months. So this is a long-acting effect. This is an extremely effective drug therapeutically with a marked reduction in relapse risk, a marked reduction in MRI disease activity, and a marked reduction in the risk of disability progression. But it is also associated with increased risk of developing PML, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, And as uh, internal medicine physicians, you are aware of this disease because it occurs so frequently in HIV-AIDS patients, occurs in organ transplant patients who are aggressively immunocompromised, as well as in cancer patients, especially those with lymphoproliferative disorders. Now, the virus that's responsible for PML, JC virus, is present in about 50% of the adult population in North America. It's harmless in almost everyone. It resides primarily in the kidney, it's shed in urine, and it's also found in bone marrow. However, in immunocompromised patients, this virus may gain entrance into the central nervous system and produce this devastating disease with about 100% mortality in HIV patients and 20% mortality in MS patients with the remainder of the MS patients having severe residual disability. Why this occurs with natalizumab therapy is not understood really at all, but it occurs, especially with prolonged use of natalizumab, especially past two years. Fortunately, we have a blood test which detects the presence of antibodies to JC virus, so we can tell which patients are infected and therefore avoid the use of this medicine in patients who harbor this virus and also, since about 3% of the viral negative patients become positive each year, we do serial testing for this antibody every three to six months. And if a patient becomes positive and the level of the antibody is in what we consider a dangerous range, we have to change medication. Nevertheless, this is an extremely effective medication for the right, for properly selected patient. Now, earlier in the talk, I emphasized the importance of B-cell lymphocytes. As a driver of relapsing disease, and I now want to talk about therapies that are anti-B cell therapies. I'm going to start with the lymphocytolytic agents, rituximab, ofatumumab, and ofatumumab. Rituximab has been around for a very long time. It's been treated, used to treat B cell lymphomas and leukemias, lupus, organ transplant rejection, and so on, rheumatoid arthritis. But in MS, it has never been the subject of a phase three trial, even though we know it's effective from phase two studies. However, ocrelizumab and ofatumumab are also anti-B cell agents which have had FDA approval. These medications have, like natalizumab, profound impact in patients with relapsing disease, in reducing relapses, reducing MRI disease activity, and uh, also reducing the risk of disability progression. The problem with this group of medications is they render patients much more vulnerable to serious infection. Not only herpetiform infections, but things like urosepsis, pneumonia with sepsis, and there is a mortality rate right, associated with the use of this drug. And we here have had several uh, case fatalities from overwhelming infection. Although these drugs lowered B cell levels profoundly, lower immunoglobulin production moderately, it really seems that the major risk factor for major um, infectious disease in these patients is the age of the patient and the level of disability of the patient. And this has really informed our decision-making in the use of these medications. Nonetheless, they are extremely effective and they selectively destroy B-cell lymphocytes. Two other agents, cladribine, again, been around for a long time in the cancer space for the treatment of leukemias and lymphomas, is both an anti-B and anti-T-cell agent. And then alemtuzumab also known as Lemtrata, also been around a very long time in the cancer space, destroys B cells, T cells, and monocytes. I'm gonna go through these medicines and give you a little more information about them. Now, as I mentioned, rituximab, ocrelizumab, and ofatumumab are anti-specific monoclonal antibodies directed against CD20, which is only expressed on B cell lymphocytes. As I mentioned, these have profound effects, uh, good effects on uh, controlling disease activity. And interestingly, of this group, ocrelizumab and only ocrelizumab has been approved for the treatment of primary progressive MS. It is the only approved agent we have for that indication. However, the effects are modest. And furthermore, really, it's younger patients with shorter disease duration who seem to be the responders. So here's the genealogy of B-cells. And the part of this I want you to focus on is the immature, mature, and memory B-cells, which express CD20 on their surface. These are the cells that are selectively destroyed by oculizumab, rituximab, and ofatumumab. These cells simply disappear. Um, this is not a drug that has any real impact on the production of antibodies by plasma cells because plasma cells and plasma blasts do not express CD20. These cells are not destroyed. Very effective medications. Now, cladribine is an oral medication, and one of the outstanding features of cladribine and allantuzumab, which I'm going to speak about in a moment, is that these medications have very prolonged therapeutic effects. So cladribine enters the cell and forms a cytolytic toxic molecule called chlorodeoxyadenosine. However, this drug is only active in lymphocytes because it is lymphocytes that are deficient in the enzyme that breaks down this toxic molecule. And this very rapidly leads to loss of of both T and B cell lymphocytes, but it is the marked reduction in B cells that seems to be the basis of its therapeutic effect. And furthermore, treatment can lead to 12 or more months of pro-inflammatory memory B-cell suppression. Studies currently demonstrate that this drug three years after treatment remains effective without any additional therapy. This drug is given in two treatment sessions, year one, two sessions of oral medications a month apart, year two the same thing, and then that's it. There's no more additional therapy and the FDA has a box warning against using it more than twice because of the increased risk of cancer, which may occur with this drug. Nevertheless, it is very effective clinically, and again, for the properly selected patient, is one of our good oral agents that we use for patients with more severe disease. Olentizumab is an anti-CD52 monoclonal antibody. CD52 is represented on lymphocytes as well as monocytes, and this drug has a prolonged suppression and its destruction of these cells. Again, this medication, which is also given just two pulses a year apart, uh, that's all the therapy most patients need, and they basically have, they've been permanently treated, and patients have been followed out for six or eight years and have not required any additional therapy, and most of this appears to be due to the prolonged suppression of B-cell, a memory B-cell recovery. Now, the problem with this medication is that it induces other secondary autoimmune diseases. Up to 40% of patients will develop autoimmune thyroid disease. There's an increased risk of thyroid cancer. There's an increased risk of ITP. There's an increased risk of good pasture syndrome, as well as va- isolated cases of vasculitis. In addition to this, these patients have gotta be on herpetiform prophylaxis um, for probably most of the course, if not the rest of their lives. And furthermore, uh, these patients have to be monitored every single month with CBC urinalysis, thyroid studies every three months. And you can imagine how the patients fall between the cracks. So uh, this has become a very difficult drug to use. And it's primarily because of its secondary autoimmune disease profile that many places are using it very sparingly. We use very, very little of it. Now let's develop a therapeutic hierarchy. And the hierarchy I'm gonna present to you is based upon actual um, head-to-head trials uh, where we compare one drug to another or phase four comparator trials or using statistical methodology um, called uh, matching uh, adjusted indirect comparisons where you can co- you can create um, populations of patients from different trials that are the same and make direct comparisons as to efficacy. The first of these, of course, the least efficacy. Medicines with modest benefit are the platform medications, Interferons, Glutarimer. Um, these uh, up to a third of patients with relapsing disease who start on these medicines will have a relapse within the first two weeks. Then the platform plus oral medications, teriflunomide, and the methylfumarates, probably slightly more efficacious than Interferon and Glat, um, but not a great deal more. So for the most part, quite safe. Um, oral and therefore better compliance. But again, for patients who are extremely ill, these drugs are probably not adequate. Now, higher efficacy medications, those sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor blockers, uh, more efficacious than the platform and platform plus drugs. Again, more difficulties in terms of cytopetiform infections, macular edema, cardiac conduction abnormalities, hypertension. Nevertheless, these are very efficacious drugs and clearly stand higher in the hierarchy than the platforms. Then we have long duration, higher efficacy medications, cladribine and alum, which I've just spoken about. And then lastly, the highest efficacious medications, natalizumab with its unfortunate increased risk of PML, ocrelizumab, ofatumumab, ofit- with their very, very high efficacy profiles for, in this case, also a primary progressive disease and in, um, and the problem here is the risk of infection. And the only reason I put a question mark next to rituximab is because it never underwent a phase three trial. It was a generic, no drug company for a phase three trial until they could patent something. And what they've patented is ocalizumab and ofatumumab. Now, how do you use these agents? Well, for a new onset disease or patients who have not been treated before, patients with low level of disease activity Modest changes on the MRI scan, and most importantly, no evidence of brainstem or spinal cord. Excellent drugs to start patients who are newly diagnosed. Many patients will do well, but most patients over have to be transitioned off these medicines because of breakthrough disease, the higher efficacy medications, who would you use and relapsing patients but also one of them saponoma demonstrated that they could also be used in relapsing secondary progressive patients these are patients who have broken through platform therapy or didn't tolerate platform therapy but also newly diagnosed patients have a large disease burden have a significant deficit already or have uh, involvement of the brain stem however we in our clinic would not start these drugs on a new patient if they had spinal cord involvement. Then we get to the highest efficacy drugs, the ocralizumab, natalizumab, and so on. Now, these are also primarily for patients with a relapsing disease, although I mentioned to you that ocralizumab also has an indication for primary progressive MS. The medications would be used in patients who broke through either platform or higher efficacy medications. But in a small number of patients, they can be the initial therapy, but they must meet certain criteria. One might be that they have a severe residual deficit from the disease they already have, or have very large disease burden on MRI scan, especially if they have multiple large enhancing lesions indicating a large degree of active inflammation. And also in the occasional newly diagnosed patient, also has spinal cord lesions. Patients with spinal cord lesions at presentation have the worst prognosis and additional spinal cord disease, if not controlled, could have devastating consequences. So when we see a patient come in with spinal cord lesions, we go to the top right away. And I would advise that everyone do that. All right, now that's a sort of overview from 20, 30,000 feet of what's happened in the last 25 years. How well have we done? Have we accomplished goals and what goals have we accomplished? Now, this next slide, shows a very interesting piece of work that was done by Brian Weinshenker, who at the time was an MS neurologist in Western Ontario, Canada. And what he looked at in the population of patients in their clinic was how long it took from the first onset of relapsing disease to the development of the much more dangerous secondary progressive phenotype. And what you see is that within five years, 10% or more of patients were already having secondary progressive disease. 40% by 10 years, 55% at 15 years and so on. That was the natural history of the disease. This was done in 1999 and in Western Ontario in 1999, they had virtually no access to these medications. So this was an untreated cohort. What does it look like now? Study done at uh, UC San Francisco by Bruce Cree and his colleagues published in 2016, looked at 570 of their patients and looked at the problem again. What percentage of patients went on to secondary progressive disease and how long did it take? Now, when this study was published, none of the B-cell lytic therapies were available yet. So we're looking at a population of patients primarily treated with the platform drugs, some patients on fingolimod, some patients on natalizumab, and that's it. Well, instead of it being 40% at 10 years, it was 10%. Instead of being 55% at 15 years, it was 18%. And at 20 years, 24%, not 65%. So we've obviously made tremendous progress when we had no agents at all 25 years ago. It's been a very, very exciting ride. However, we ain't done because we still have a lot to do. There are still patients developing progressive disease. Can we stop it entirely? Can we ablate in such a way that this never happens? So that's one of the challenges. Furthermore, if patients get progressive disease, we really don't have very effective therapy. Yes, ocrelizumab is okay for early cases of primary progressive disease. Yes, there is some benefit to patients with the relapsing form of secondary progressive disease, uh, but we really don't have what we need. Furthermore, if we control the disease in a person, they're still left with neurological deficits. Can we repair the central nervous system? We've just gone through two very disappointing experiences, one with a monoclonal antibody that in animals, stimulated the reactivation of oligodendroglial cells and led to remyelination in models of MS, and a monoclonal antibody that promoted the regrowth of severed and transected axons to their targets in animals. Both of these molecules failed in phase three human studies is very, very disappointing. And this remains an enormous, enormous need for patients with any destructive disease of how do you repair the nervous system? Now, remember early on, I said that viruses are believed to kick this disease off. There are no antiviral therapies currently being employed in patients with MS. If indeed EB virus is responsible for driving this disease, what would happen if you destroyed it? So a small pharmaceutical company in Southern California has developed a CAR-T lymphocyte, a genetically um, engineered lymphocyte that selectively destroys EB virus and that enters the central nervous system. And they are just beginning studies using the cell as a therapeutic agent in patients with relapsing and progressive forms of MS. Lastly, I want to touch upon Bruton tyrosine kinase. This is an enzymatic system and pathway that is essential for the survival and function of B cell lymphocytes. Again, B cell lymphocytes, so important in this disease. There's now a raft of bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors. There's been a phase two study showing efficacy in patients with relapsing coronary disease. Now, why this group of molecules are so important is that not only do they destroy selectively activated B cells, but they enter the central nervous system. It's been demonstrated in animals that they clear and destroy and remove activated B cells in the central nervous system. And furthermore, these may be drugs that will benefit in preventing progressive forms of disease. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Uh, I want to thank everyone. Uh, I don't know if there are any questions. And if there are, I'll be happy to try to answer them.
0: Great, many, many thanks, Dr. Cohan, for that tremendous overview. I think as a frontline practitioner, um, it emphasizes for me the importance of diagnosis, um, given the emphasis for really strong treatment, so inspiring. We do have some questions here and a short amount of time, so I'll move forward with a few of those. So first, I would ask, um, could you comment on the risk of COVID while on MS medications and on efficacy of COVID vaccine while on MS meds?
1: Uh, That is a superb question. Uh, Epidemiologic data so far, especially from France and from Italy and from Denmark, and to a lesser extent from the United States, make it evident that patients with multiple sclerosis are not more vulnerable to get the disease And furthermore, except for severely physically disabled MS patients, do not have outcome if they do become infected. The issue of medication, however, is looming as one very, very large. We have been concerned that patients on especially B-cell lytic or B-cell inhibiting therapies may have reduced ability to mount an immune response to the vaccine. Now, to date, there is only one publication but it may be a bellwether of what's to come. There's a paper out of Israel that was published about four weeks ago that demonstrated, at least in their population, that ocrelizumab and fingolomar-treated patients had marked reduction in the neutralizing antibody levels to spike protein peptide antigens, but they did not see it with cladribine. However, I wanna caution you that just because patients don't have circulating antibody levels, doesn't mean that they're not immunized. What these people did not do is they did not look at whether or not spike protein peptides activated B cells and T cells in vitro. So we'll have to see, but their initial data and the work was carefully done is very disturbing and we're very worried about how effectively we have immunized our patients receiving those medications.
0: Great, many thanks for that. Um, Here's a, a question. There's a hypothesis initially in the 1980s, and for several decades, suggesting that methanol might be metabolized to formaldehyde um, and then making uh, myontogenic. Um, Is there a marked difference in the prevalence of MS in technologically primitive societies with uh, low methanol exposure, as opposed to first world societies that may have more exposure to things like canned fruit, cigarette smoke um, and other? Forms of um, methanol and formaldehyde?
1: I've seen no reference to formaldehyde in the mainstream MS literature, which I've been following for over 30 years. I think if there are major differences between industrialized and non industrialized society, I don't think it's about formaldehyde or canned peaches. Furthermore, uh, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I really don't think that's a viable pathway to follow. Uh, I will say this that we have to always be very, very careful. A sampling bias. You know, someone who goes to Cornell University and has MS is followed. Away. And a person who lives in a small village, in Africa, they're treated differently and observed differently. And until true understanding of an in-depth assessment of various populations in various parts of the world, we really can't speak to which environmental agent may be in in disease risk.
0: Thank you for your comments. And perhaps just one follow-up question related to epidemiologic risk. Um, Does there seem to be an association between cigarette smoking and incident?
1: Uh, Yes, there is. Uh, Among the risk factors, environmental risk factors and lifestyle risk factors for multiple sclerosis, two loom very large. One is tobacco, uh, smoking cigarettes specifically. Patients who are cigarette smokers have a much worse prognosis vis-a-vis their MS than people who don't smoke. And we make a concerted effort to get people to be tobacco-free and we harp on it constantly torturing them if they keep on smoking. And then the other thing is obesity. Uh, Obesity, for reasons I don't understand, does impact immune system function. And again, not because of comorbidities, but even in younger obese patients who don't yet have other comorbidities as a result of their um, obesity, they clearly have a worse prognosis. So that's a very important and good question. And yes, these are things that we emphasize a great deal to our patients as part of lifestyle management with their disease.
0: Ah, Thank you. Interesting. And follow up to that, um, have you seen the weight loss that you have improved outcomes?
1: Uh, There's no real way yet of uh, scientifically assessing that. Uh, It's very hard to know whether a person's clinical course thereafter would be different. But of course, you raise a very important question. That would be an excellent study in a very, very large cohort looking at patients above certain BMIs. Looking at those who lose weight and then following them out for 10 years to see if there's a difference. But no work like that has been done, to my knowledge.
0: Great. Uh, Future study. Um, And perhaps I'll end uh, looking at the time here with a pair of questions um, related to vitamin D. Um, So first off, I am curious whether there has been study looking at... um, introducing vitamin D supplementation in a pediatric population and um, ways of preventing um, multiple sclerosis on a population level.
1: Well, I'm not a pediatric neurologist, so I can't with any direct um, experience address this, but I'll t- let me tell you about uh, an epidemiological study. A uh, study was done in Denmark using their uh, pregnancy registry, which has been in place since 1946 and they take blood samples on every pregnant woman. And they discovered that women who had the lowest vitamin D levels during first trimester of pregnancy had the highest risk of their children developing multiple sclerosis. We think that the level of vitamin D in people is generally too low the so-called magic number of 30 may be okay for rickets, but it doesn't seem to be okay for MS. And in studies looking specifically at circulating plasma levels of vitamin D, plasma levels in the 60 to 80 range are necessary to confer protection. And our notions of what are adequate vitamin D levels, um, at least for autoimmune diseases, are really based on the study of other diseases like rickets in the 19th century. And we believe that vitamin D supplementation, certainly for people with autoimmune diseases, uh, should result in higher circulating levels. We check our patients' vitamin D levels every three to four months because it also varies seasonally. And we have our target zones up in the 40 to 60 to 80 range. That doesn't answer your question about kids, well, but, so, but it's a good question.
0: <laughs> I think it has answered a couple of questions. Um, it, it does fascinate me with regard to thinking about what seems like a relatively straightforward public health intervention in well, youth if, and young adults.
1: If, if I may, I'm sorry. Given the higher risk of developing the disease in first order relatives, it would seem to me that if a parent has developed multiple sclerosis, monitoring vitamin D levels in their children from fairly early on, because remember the risk of this disease Probably as it relates to vitamin D occurs fairly early in life, that if they have MS, they should be monitoring having their pediatrician monitor their children's vitamin D levels and making sure they're at a reasonable level.
0: And I think you've mostly already answered this question related to vitamin D. Uh, there was curiosity since the D seems so important early in life that once patients are diagnosed and, and being treated for multiple sclerosis, is there a role for monitoring and elevating the level?
1: Now, no study of this has been perfect because it's difficult studies to do, but there certainly is evidence to suggest, certainly class two evidence to suggest that people not treated with vitamin D supplementation have a rockier course from their MS than those who are. So it does seem that there can be downstream effects and that the introduction of vitamin D even later in life may be beneficial in terms of controlling the levels of disease activity. Because again, this vitamin regulates genes that regulate auto-tolerance.
0: Great, thanks so much. I said that was gonna be the last question, but I'm gonna take advantage of one more minute. um since ms is often in the differential diagnosis for a multitude of presenting symptoms you commented sensitivity of mri um and i wondered whether there are clinical cases in which there remains a high clinical suspicion for a diagnosis of ms without any brain or spine mri lesions
1: um in a nutshell no <laughs> uh. I'm sure there's one out there somewhere, but uh, if we do not see lesions in the brain and or spinal cord that are characteristic In appearance for what MS lesions look like, uh, we would be very hard put to make that diagnosis. Now, there are other neuroinflammatory diseases that don't produce such lesions, and the differential includes such things as lupus and neurosarcoidosis and uh, anti uh, aquaporin 4 antibody and anti MOG and a a host of others. Uh, And we do that as part of our differential diagnosis look at those diseases, including the non inflammatory paraneoplastic autoimmune disorders, all of which can fool you and mimic MS and those are always part of our thinking as we work our patients up. But a patient who has no MRI lesions that look like MS would meet no one's criteria for the diagnosis.
0: Great, as always, so much for your expertise and your time, Dr. Cohan. We will look forward to having you back again in the future.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Being given this opportunity means a great deal to me as well, thank you. I don't know, fabulous, but anyway, it was okay.